Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, brought to you by SubChina. Each week, we bring you a roundup of news and a selection of full stories, plus conversations with reporters and editors from Caixin, China's authority on business and financial news. I'm Kaiser Guo from the Seneca Podcast. And I'm Ada Shen in Paris. First, our weekly review of business stories from Caixin and beyond. On Wednesday, R&F Properties replaced rival Sunak China Holdings to purchase over 70 Wanda Group hotels as part of a 63 billion yuan hotel and theme park sale that originally included only Sunak. Sunak will now buy only 13 theme parks. The last-minute change to the deal was announced the day of the signing ceremony. R&F later said that it learned of the deal, quote, by chance, unquote, last weekend, and made the decision over the span of just four days. Meanwhile, in Beijing, Chaoyang District Police said it will hire 2,400 native Beijingers to conduct door-to-door safety checks on the city's migrant residents. As part of the inspections, the new recruits will ask to see if migrants hold a proper residence permit, a move some online say is aimed at driving those without Beijing hukos out of the city. On Friday, word got out that beleaguered tech company La Echo has defaulted on a $75 million bond that was due July 7th. Bondholder Shanghai Chichung Asset Management said La Echo proposed deferring the bond's due date by a year or converting the amount owed into La Echo shares. Nine private funds are currently trying to recoup their investment in La Echo. In other news, China's Ministry of Environmental Protection is raising a stink about imports of solid waste and says it will ban shipments into the country of 24 types of trash, including unsorted waste paper and textiles, by the end of this year. China unveiled a national development plan for artificial intelligence industries, outlining ambitions to become a world leader in AI by 2025. China's state council said the AI industry will serve as a major new economic growth engine and will trigger expansion in related industries of more than 1 trillion yuan by 2020. And finally, China has for years been trying to shift away from easy money in and outside the formal banking system, or deleveraging as the process is technically called, while maintaining sufficient growth. 
As the country walks a tightrope, another systemic issue emerges. Many of the risks that should be resolved are in a regulatory no-man's land, where it's unclear which government agency is actually in charge. For more on how China tried to address this at its recent National Financial Work Conference, let's hear from Aries Poon, senior finance reporter at Caixin Global. Aries, what is the significance of this conference? So the National Finance Work Conference is held once every five years, and it is very important because it was chaired by President Xi Jinping and also Premier Li Keqiang. And this year, the focus is primarily on how the financial reform is going to be carried forward. So in these past couple of years, we've seen that China's financial system has been fueled by all these credits, all these loans, and the market has been concerned how to unwind them, especially when. The economy is slowing down. So this year, the conference is about how regulators are trying to work together in order to address the ballooning credits, the ballooning risk built within the financial system. So, what do we actually know about the conference and the new committee? The conference ended last week, and、uh, one of the major outcomes was the creation of a cabinet-level financial stability committee.、Uh, although it may sound vague for the moment because we don't know much about what this committee is like, but it is a major step taken in terms of the regulation in China. Because for the past couple of years, we've seen there is this loopholes among regulators in terms of overseeing how the financial system is being regulated. So we have bank. Regulator, we have the insurance regulator, and also we have the central bank, and then we have this monetary policy, and then we also have the securities regulator. But they were not really working together to address some of the problems, and especially because the problems now are spanning across different categories. So this committee is very important, and it also have this effect of soothing investors' concern because some of these investors, especially foreign investors, when you see Moody. Which downgraded China's credit rating primarily because of risk. So this committee is China's answers to、uh, the concerns among foreign investors when it comes to how to rein in the increasing risk within the financial sector. What more does the market want to know? So the announcement last week is more like a high-level mandate from the government that shows you know it is committed to financial stability, curtailing risks, and also curbing reckless borrowing, especially on the local government level. But there were Not many details in how the regulators will actually work together. Will there be new laws on、uh, whatever the government want to rein in? So, what the market is awaiting is more details on exactly how these will be executed. Because、uh, the central bank will be taking the lead, so we know that the office of this committee will be set inside the central bank. So this is clear, but we still don't know what would be the role of the banking regulator. The insurance regulators, the securities regulators. So hopefully, more details will emerge because at the end of the day, it's all about execution. Well, hopefully, we can talk with you again soon and see how this unfolds. That sounds good, Kaiser. Thanks, Aries. Next, let's turn to Doug Young, senior editor at Caixin, to talk about the vexing phenomenon of flight delays in China and a Caixin piece about what's behind all the delays. Doug, anyone who's lived in China knows the flights often take off very late. What's new here? Well, the story here is China's put out its half-year report for on-time flight arrivals, 
And the results are really quite scary, not in terms of safety or anything like that, but just in terms of how punctual the flights are. In the first half of the year, just 71% of Chinese flights were on time. And that's a three-year low. To put that in perspective, I looked at the U.S. and the worst of the worst U.S. airlines, which I think was United, posted a on-time ratio of about 80%, and the best was about 90%. So that would make the U.S. about 85%, perhaps. And we're saying all of China is at 70%. So it's quite a bit lower, and it's even worse looking because apparently the 70% is down six percentage points from a year ago. So Chinese flights are having problems getting out of the gate on time these days. So it's actually causing the delays then? They're citing a bunch of reasons for it. Uh, One has been weather, which I'm always a little suspicious about. You know, I mean, we have weather every year. Another one they have is the military exercises. And that is one thing that China is famous for. You don't see it anywhere in the West because the airspace around major cities is just not used for military exercises. But in China, the military actually controls the big majority of Chinese airspace. And they're just these small corridors that are available for civilian air use. So when the military decides it wants to hold a drill, you know, it's too bad. They'll shut down all flights in and out of the airport till the military finishes its exercise. So they were saying a quarter of actually the delays were caused by military activity. One other is uh, apparently these drones that are all the rage these days. They're apparently a factor in things, but it doesn't look like a huge factor. But they, they did say 800 flights were delayed due to drones flying in airspace they shouldn't have been flying in. Doug, you fly a lot. What's your personal experience been? I've been flying in China for years, and it just seems like really in the last year, and really just for me this year probably, it's just the flights have just been getting worse and worse. Stats for the first six months also included just June, and apparently only half of flights in China were on time in June. And personally, I just came back from a trip to Yunnan. Before that, I did a trip to Hong Kong, And the trip down to Hong Kong was ridiculous. It was delayed three and a half hours. The plane was there. There was no excuse given. At one point, we just sat in the plane. We thought we were getting ready to take off on a runway. The pilot informed us that the runway had suddenly been closed down. And then uh, on this Yunnan flight I just took in the last few days, on the way down, the flight was delayed an hour and a half. On the way back, the flight was delayed two hours and a half, two of which we got to sit on the plane and do nothing. Just today, actually, I was having lunch with uh, one of my contacts, and he said his plane from Shanghai to Beijing was an hour and a half late. And I was like, gee, that sucks. And he was like, no, actually, an hour and a half. If it's only an hour and a half, I'm pretty happy. And that sort of sums up the situation these days. They're just really bad these last few months. Thanks, Doug. And now for our selection of important stories from Caixin Global for the week. We'll hear how Chinese students studying overseas, over half a million of them, are spending over $56 billion annually. We'll look into how they're spending it. We'll look at an agricultural agreement long in the works between China and the U.S., which has finally been reached, and how it may see U.S.-grown rice being imported into China. We'll examine Red Bull's business in China, where a local partner is at the end of a 20-year lease agreement, and there's now wrangling over trademark rights while Red Bull's big rival in the energy drink industry, Monster, tries to muscle in. 
We'll hear how a primary school in Zhejiang has landed itself in trouble for requesting background checks only for migrant parents in a policy seen as discriminatory. And we'll remember the life of Zhang Zhongpei, the long-serving director of Beijing's Palace Museum, who died at the age of 83. From Business and Tech, overseas Chinese students spend $56 billion annually by Yang Ge. The swelling ranks of Chinese students studying abroad are spending 380 billion yuan, about $56 billion annually, as many increasingly turn to their home country's booming electronic transaction services to pay their tuition bills, according to the largest player. China is the world's largest source of students studying outside their home country, with 523,700 enrolled in overseas programs last year, according to the website Statistica. That number, combined with the total spending figure from electronic payment giant UnionPay, translates to annual spending of more than 700,000 yuan per overseas student, or more than $100,000 apiece. Those huge figures reflect the rapid rise of a new affluent class of Chinese, many of whom are willing to spend lavishly on education for sons and daughters who are often only children, the product of the nation's decades-long one-child policy that only recently ended. Many also think that such education will give their children an edge over those educated in a Chinese system that is often criticized for stressing rote learning. Among the total spent by overseas students, about 80% went to tuition and daily expenses, according to Union Pay International, which operates an electronic transactions network similar to those owned by Visa Inc. and MasterCard Inc. The average age of Chinese studying abroad is going down, and the number of destinations they choose is becoming more diverse, Union Pay said. The U.S., the U.K., Australia, and Canada are still the most popular destinations for overseas study, it said. Japan, France, New England, Singapore, and Germany are also among the top ten destinations. China is a relative latecomer to credit cards and other forms of electronic payments, which have only achieved widespread use over the last decade. MasterCard and Visa remain largely locked out of the market, leaving state-owned UnionPay as the monopoly provider of credit and debit cards. But that monopoly is being challenged by a new generation of web and smartphone-based services backed by internet giant Tencent and Ant Financial, the former financial unit of e-commerce leader Alibaba. UnionPay is still the clear leader outside China. Within the education realm, it allows Chinese students to pay their tuition at 2,000 international universities, partly through tie-ups with local partners, including U.S. fund transfer giants Western Union and Peer Transfer, which now goes by the name of Flywire. Tencent and Ant Financial, operators of the popular WeChat and Alipay services, respectively, have also begun to expand aggressively outside China, mostly so far by targeting Chinese tourists traveling abroad. But Ant Financial could get a boost through its pending $1.2 billion acquisition of U.S.-based MoneyGram International Inc., a rival to Western Union. From Business and Tech, Agreement Sows Seeds for First-Ever U.S. Rice Exports to China by Yang Ge. In a move with big symbolic overtones, the U.S. could soon export rice to China for the first time after the two sides agreed on a protocol for such trade, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture and a major U.S. trade organization. 
The agreement caps more than a decade of effort toward such exports, U.S. Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue said in a statement. The department did not say what steps must still be taken before such exports can actually begin, nor did it provide a time frame. A press officer with China's Ministry of Commerce had no comment on the issue when contacted by Caixin on Friday. This is another great day for U.S. agriculture, and in particular for our rice growers and millers, who can now look forward to gaining access to the Chinese market. This market represents an exceptional opportunity today with enormous potential for growth in the future, Purdue said. Trade organization USA Rice also applauded the development. The president and secretary Purdue have opened the door. Now it's time to move to our technical to-do list so that rice shipments can occur, said Carl Brothers, chairman of USA Rice's International Trade Policy Committee. We know China wants to send a team here to inspect mills and facilities certified to ship to China, and we are working with the U.S. Department of Agriculture to make sure that happens in the quickest and most efficient way. China consumes the equivalent of the entire rice crop about every two weeks and is expected to import 4.3 million metric tons, or 5.3 million tons, of milled rice in 2017-2018, making it by far the world's largest import market, according to USA Rice. The development comes as U.S. President Donald Trump pressures Beijing to open China's markets to more American products in a bid to create more balanced trade. That includes access to more agricultural products, an area where the U.S. is a global leader. In a related development, China recently resumed imports of U.S. beef following a 14-year ban. Last month, China also approved imports of new varieties of genetically modified corn and soybeans, widening the door for genetically engineered crops developed by U.S. agrochemical giants. From Business and Tech, Red Bull owner locks horns with Chinese partners by Coco Feng. Beijing. Energy drink Red Bull is facing growing uncertainty in China due to an ongoing trademark dispute between its Thai owner and Chinese partners and a threat posed by rival Monster, which entered the market in 2016. Bangkok-based TC Pharmaceutical Industries Company, the creator and owner of Red Bull, sued a Chinese packaging supplier, ORG Packaging Company Limited, accusing ORG of unauthorized use of Red Bull's well-known trademark, ORG said in a filing to the Shenzhen Stock Exchange on Friday. The case is part of a larger dispute between TC Pharma and Beijing-based Rainwood Group, which introduced the popular drink to China in the 1990s on a 20-year licensing agreement that expired last year. ORG is the company that Rainwood used to make the packaging for Red Bull in China. Neither TC Pharma nor Rainwood has announced whether they will extend the contract. Rainwood is running a Red Bull marketing campaign that ends in December, which some have seen as a sign that the parties have reached a deal for an extension. But ORG said the dispute between the Thai owner and Rainwood remains unsettled. In its suit against ORG, TC Pharma demanded that the company stop producing and selling products with the Red Bull trademark and pay 30 million yuan, $4.43 million, in damages. The case will likely take a toll on Red Bull's sales, as the Chinese market accounted for 35% of global sales in 2015, according to market researcher Euromonitor. TC Pharma and its subsidiaries are wholeheartedly devoted to continuing the Red Bull business in China, the company said in a written statement to Caixin. But for trademark disputes involving foreign companies, it can take a year for a court to issue a ruling, said Chang Junhu, a copyright lawyer with Beijing Chofen Law Firm. 
Red Bull is also being bled by rival energy drink brand Monster, which barged into the Chinese market in September 2016. Monster controls 42.5% of the global energy drink market, much more than Red Bull's 29.5%, said analyst Guru Gong from Everbright Securities. But the two brands are built on different images. Red Bull has positioned itself as a functional beverage, while Monster has targeted younger consumers seeking to be free and cool, Gu said. From People School in Hot Seat for Insisting on Criminal Checks Only for Migrant Parents by Li Rongde Beijing A primary school's decision to ask for migrant parents' criminal histories as part of the admissions process has caused a stir in China, with many angry at illicit barriers curbing access to education for low-income children. Under China's Rigid Household Registration System, or HUKO, one can only have access to a public school in the locality where one is registered. Parents who have moved to another city for work and don't have a local HUKO need additional documents, such as tax-paid receipts, to secure a seat in a government school. However, they don't need to undergo a criminal background check. The written request, sent by Hotai Primary School in Taizhou, Zhejiang Province, asking migrant parents to provide a police verification showing they had no criminal history, was posted online by lawyer Liu Wenhua on Sunday, instantly triggering a public outcry. The lawyer also posted a copy of such a verification, on which a police officer had written, which government department has drawn up these rules making this certificate a prerequisite for admitting migrant students to school. The police also challenged the school, saying the country's compulsory education system guaranteed universal access to schooling from grades 1 through 9. This idea was echoed by many internet commentators who criticized hurdles to public education for children from migrant families and less privileged backgrounds. Repeated calls to the school went unanswered. The authenticity of the two documents published online was verified by the Luqiao District Education Bureau, which governs the school. The District Education Authority defended the school, saying it was acting in accordance with two provincial government directives issued in 2008 and in 2014, which require a criminal check for migrant parents. However, the Provincial Education Department dismissed the claim, saying those regulations were overwritten by a new rule that went into effect on July 1, 2016. An official from the Provincial Education Office, who only gave his surname Ma, told Saishin that his department had instructed schools to abide by the July 1st document when admitting migrant students. However, the official said he didn't know why the message hadn't reached Hotsai Primary School or what penalties they could face for violating the rule. This isn't the first time that a school has been in hot water for making controversial requests. Education authorities in Shanghai in May ordered two popular private primary schools to apologize after it was revealed that one gave parents a grueling IQ test and another grilled students over the profession of their grandparents, a practice which analysts said favored children from the elite families. From People Archaeologist Who Stood Guard Over Forbidden City Dies at 83 By Yangjing, Palace Museum Researcher A couple of months after Zhang Zhongpei was appointed director of the Palace Museum in June 1987, lightning struck the Forbidden City. The lightning started a fire in the palace complex in Beijing that was once home to China's emperors for nearly half a millennium. 
Around the same time as the fire, the palace suffered two thefts of historic artifacts. Even though the flames were quickly doused and the thief was caught, Zhang was appalled. It was then he made protecting the Forbidden City his top priority. The then 53-year-old archaeologist pushed for a series of management changes that would bring all of the Forbidden City under the auspices of the Palace Museum, which is itself located in the complex. He stretched the museum's authority to encompass the Forbidden City's eastern, western, and northern moats, as well as their related buildings. On the surface, it was a bureaucratic change, but it effectively fulfilled Zhang's vision of consolidating the Forbidden City into a single, undivided historic site. His mentor, the prominent archaeologist Su Bingqi, once called Zhang the gatekeeper to the Forbidden City, according to a report on Monday by the official Xinhua News Agency. Zhang's tenure as the fourth director of the Palace Museum was a high point in a career devoted to protecting China's history and pioneering the field of archaeology in the country. As both an archaeologist and a tireless advocate for preserving China's cultural heritage, Zhang left his footprints all over the country. He died on July 5th at a hospital in Beijing. He was 83. Over his career, the renowned archaeologist served on the Archaeology Committee of the State Administration of Cultural Heritage and as a member of the National Planning Office of Philosophy and Social Science. He was also named the Honorary President of the Institute of Gugong Studies. Zhang was born in 1934 in Changsha, capital of the southern province of Hunan. He attended Peking University, where he majored in archaeology. In 1961, he was assigned to teach history at Jilin University in Changchun, capital of China's northeastern Jilin province. As an administrator, Zhang took advantage of higher education reforms at the country's key universities to found an archaeology program in 1972 during the Cultural Revolution. Although he had no funding or textbooks or field experience, Zhang began leading teachers and students from Jilin University on excursions to do archaeological research while exploring the countryside. Later, he guided a team of his students to create an archaeology curriculum and write textbooks, focusing on its practice. He developed his own strategies for conducting field work, which he named positional warfare, mobile warfare, and guerrilla warfare, terms that appropriated the language of the revolution. In the years that followed, Jilin University's archaeology program became the best in the country, topping national rankings for both the research and the quality of graduates it produced. Many of the program's graduates went on to become famous teachers, star researchers, and senior administrators at universities, research institutions, and museums around the country. Zhang's tenure at the Palace Museum lasted until January of 1991. From the next year on, he devoted himself to the preservation of China's cultural heritage. In the following years, Zhang took up the social duties of an archaeologist, such as developing conservation plans for key national projects. To this day, people remember his contributions to the preservation of the Hongshan site at Chaoyang, Liaoning Province, one of the major archaeological sites of the Hongshan civilization, which occupied a stretch of northeastern China from 4700 BC to 2900 BC. Zhang is also well known for lobbying for the protection of the Liye slips of the Qin dynasty, which reigned from 221 BC to 206 BC. Before the invention of paper, people wrote on bamboo slips. The Liye slips were the government records of the time. They are considered one of the greatest archaeological discoveries of the 21st century. After the turn of the century, Zhang focused his research on the origin, formulation, and development of civilizations. He introduced state theory, the idea that ancient China went through four stages, kingdom of gods, kingdoms, empires, and the party state. 
Zhang's view was that the roots of a civilization could be found in changes in family structure and social differentiation. By analyzing ceramics, jade, and other artifacts, he discovered changes to the social structure that resulted from the division of labor, social differentiation, and social stratification. From this perspective, he began to speculate on the origins and development of civilizations. In his 60-year career in archaeology, he published more than 200 papers, most of which he wrote after he was 65 years old. In the eyes of his oldest son, Zhang was a workaholic. Father usually spent 10 months a year doing field work in the countryside, Zhang Xiaowu told Xinhua. In May 2016, Zhang Zhongpei was diagnosed with lung cancer. For more than a year before he died, he did not tell anyone about his illness other than his family and a few students, according to the Xinhua report. It appears he worked right until the end. When he died, he left an unfinished paper sitting on his desk. That's this week's show. Thanks for joining us. Drop me an email at kaiser at subchina.com with your feedback. The Caixin Seneca Business Brief is powered by SubChina and is produced, recorded, and edited by Kaiser Guo with stories by the staff of Caixin Global. Thanks, of course, to Ada Shen. Special thanks to Li Xin and Tanner Brown of Caixin Global and to Spring and Autumn and Wu Fei for the music. Be sure to check out the Seneca Podcast, the current affairs show I host with Jeremy Goldcorn, and follow the news from China every day at SubChina. Sign up for our free email newsletter at subchina.com. Take care. <music>